Hey, Will, can you hear me? Got you loud and clear. Fantastic. Yeah. So I don't know what's new with you, but I just wanted to share real quick. Um, this is Lionel's holiday catalog. I got this I in the mail today. <laughs> That's my, It's May 25th tomorrow, not December 25th. And I got this in the mail today. It's not like the Christmas in July catalog or anything like nope. that. No, the regular Christmas. Happy holiday. Yeah. There's, they're congratulating Custer on rookie of the year. Oh, dear. Oh, oh dear. Yeah. That's not good. Yeah, that's. Uh, I don't. I don't know if that's on the post office or, or Lionel or or both. It wouldn't wouldn't surprise me if it's both. Given it's probably both. both. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's a little embarrassing. But how are you doing? Uh good. You know, worked uh, ten hours today, getting that Napa know-how in, and uh, doing some landscaping on the side too. So, uh, and it was a it was a beautiful evening. It was like mid seventies and sunny here, so it was just fantastic. Yeah, it's awesome. I've still got my uh, got my UPS store shirt on, yes, so sir. I got home from work this afternoon as well. Um, you know, for those of you uh, who are listening to this, it, it's going to take me at least a few days to get this out. But uh, for Will and I talking tonight, Bump Day was just yesterday at Indianapolis. Um, did you get to catch any of the action yesterday? I caught some of it on the live leaderboard, uh, mainly because they're just weren't too many cars going and I knew that with the time uh, the cars needed to cool down the engines I knew that it was really not going to be productive for my afternoon if I watched the full hour 30 of it with probably not more than 10 runs in total and I think that there were I think seven runs made total so yeah. uh, it's just interesting to refresh about once every 10 minutes on IndyCar.com and see what had changed. Yeah, you really need, you only needed to watch like the first 15 minutes and the last 15 minutes because that hour in between was when the teams that were on the outside looking in needed to cool their engines. And then even after that, Kimball and, and Enerson couldn't get in. I felt bad for Enerson because I, I felt like he really, his car just, you know, it, it wasn't an indictment on the driver not having it. Um, you know, the, the pressure of being a rookie at Indianapolis, I'm sure is very tough, but you know, when you're with a brand new team, um, it was always going to be a tall order for them to make the race. And then, you know, I was confident Penske would, would find a way uh, to not let a repeat of 95 happen and uh, power laid it all on the line there. Um, and of course, Simona's got a Penske related car and Karen's, Karen's been at, in that position the last three years. Um, I think it's the third year in a row, actually starting 31st in the 500. So He's used to the pressure by now, so uh, I, I wasn't too surprised. It's unfortunate for Charlie. I feel bad for him, but, you know, just three yeah, I was, go get him next year. I was kind of puzzled uh, at the lack of speed Kimball's shown, especially compared to Sebastian Bourdais as a teammate, and Sebastian obviously knows how to get around Indianapolis. And even you look at Dalton Kellett, and this is only, I believe, Dalton's second Indianapolis 500 and you know, generally he's had his growing pains as a rookie this year. And even then he was able to get into the top 30 ahead of Charlie Kimball, a driver who's been doing this for a decade plus in so many different teams. And, you know, Charlie, I think made it in, in that Carlin car a few years ago when it seemed like the Carlin curse was in full force. So I was a little surprised by that. Uh, but, you know, Simona's card essentially was a wild card because, you know, Penske Alliance can just mean so many different things, but you know, glad to see it at least that we had bumping and, you know, that there was nobody locked in. Yeah. yeah it's great to see Simona in the race for, for that team and that story and for her coming back after uh, 
few years away. Um, I'm glad you brought up Carlin uh, with a couple of years ago, because I remember it was the two Carlin cars. I think it was Award and Chilton. And obviously Alonzo was a Carlin related car. And that, of course, set the world on fire when he didn't make the race. Um, but Kimball was able to find the speed. And now, interesting, it's kind of a role reversal. This year, he's the only Foyt car that didn't make the field. Um, so, but I, I love it. Like, I, I got to tell you, I audibly gasped when power hit the wall. Um, you know, there's just so much tension and drama. Um, it, it's almost as exciting and enthralling for me as the Fast 9 and the race itself. Um, you know, a casual might think it's just the guys at the back of the field seems kind of irrelevant. But when you, get, when you have a guy like Will Power, who's in serious danger of not making it, it just adds so much tension to it. And it makes every single driver, you know, whether you're a rookie or whether you won the race four times, you have to earn your spot. And I really hope that that never changes. I would be very much against guaranteed starting spots in the 500. Oh, definitely. I mean, you look at Kyle Kaiser and what he did with Hunkos, and even this year, just looking at Sage Karam going with Dreyer and Rainbold and those are two guys who own car dealerships in Indianapolis. And then they throw together an Indy car team for a couple of races a year. And you have Sage Karam going neck and neck up against Will Power. They're separated by what, like a 10th of a mile an hour or something like that. And just seeing that drama and, and people in motorsports like to talk about parody all the time. But to me, that's one of the greatest examples of parody when you have Sage Karam and Will Power coming from vastly different situations, giving it everything they've got to both get in the greatest spectacle in racing yeah but like just i guess the the biggest race in nascar being the daytona 500 like imagine if jeff gordon were on the outside looking in trying to make a a qualifying runner had to race his way in through the duels you know I, I i know that for money and sponsorship reasons you'll never see bumping at daytona or anything like that but it is kind of boring to think about you know 90 percent of the field is is already set months before the season starts because it's based on who owns the charters and then you have one guy get in with the duels and I remember we were we were talking about this this year as it was happening like I don't even think you knew how Ty Dillon wasn't in the field um, because it's one guy gets in on speed on Sunday and then another guy gets in in the duels and then you have that go for the second duel as well um, so it's just a very confusing process whereas Indianapolis if you're in the fastest 33, you're in the race. If you're not, you don't qualify. It's as simple as that. Yeah. My general rule of thumb is like, anytime you need a Bob Pockris thread to explain the situation, it's generally too complicated. And with the duels, there were like six different scenarios or something where like Dylan and Smithley get in or, you know, Dylan and Timmy Hill or something like that. And at Indy, you know, it's just, all right, the fastest three cars on Sunday are the ones that make up row 11 so yeah it, it reminds me of uh the all-star race format for this year that we're gonna have coming up at, at texas i don't even know if a pockrass thread uh like i need a book for that one yeah yeah I, I, I still don't know that i fully understand it um i could say that about a lot of things that, that nascar's done in the last few years i'm sure we'll get into that later on in the show but uh yeah i hope fox is paying paying bob good money because he's certainly earning it <laughs> I've definitely, everyone's seen a lot of stories about Bob, but far and away, he is the one most willing to just put information out there in terms of rules and stuff. And he's also the one who is most open to just completely owning DARFs on Twitter and saying 
you know, more or less, you're completely wrong and here's why. And have a little bit of fun while doing it too. So I hope Fox is paying Bob good money too, especially considering the quality of their coverage elsewhere seems to be going downhill a little bit. Yeah, but it's always fun. Like, you know, Bob could tweet something like, Jimmy Johnson is hanging out in his motorhome during this rain delay here. And you're going to see a bunch of replies joking uh, to Bob's tweets saying, Hey, Bob, does Jimmy Johnson's motorhome have lights <laughs> or, or something lights. like that? So, yeah. but he's definitely one of the best our sport has to offer um, in media and in journalism. What time does Jimmy Johnson's motor coach start? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and what TV network like is that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Will, I know one thing that you and I have in common is, uh, you're a track athlete and cross country runner. And, you know, it's a little bit different because I think this is actually the first time we're actually speaking to each other. I know we've known each other over the internet for several years through Gosh, five years, I think. Yeah. A bunch Crazy. of different things. Um, and I've obviously had a lot of runners and athletes on this show from my time at Gordon and, uh, being on that team there where this whole thing got started this podcast. Um, but I don't really know about much about your career um the highs and the lows that you've gone through as as all athletes do and uh and how your career got got started so just kind of take me on the journey from the beginning how did you get into running yeah well the journey starts at heritage elementary school in De Pere, wisconsin uh where basically uh some local businesses would go in and kind of sponsor like kids running clubs for the elementary school students and my dad ran just kind of recreationally, 5Ks, 10Ks, things like that. That, that was before his knees got bad, but we'll gloss over that part of the story. Um, so basically it just started with like me and some of my friends, we would run like three days a week after school. And the culminating event was a 10K at the end of the year. And you know, I'm running like 55 minutes as a 10 year old. And I'm just super, super proud of that effort. Um, I run in middle school and our middle school was by far the largest one in the area. So naturally our team had a lot of success and I was kind of hanging on as like that sixth, seventh, eighth ish runner there, which is kind of where that varsity cutoff is once you get to levels that have varsity. And then I moved on to De Pere high school where I was kind of like in that 12, 13 spot, my freshman year, kind of on the low end of scoring junior varsity for those of you who are familiar with how cross country races work, the top five runners score in both varsity and JV. And so I was right in that three to five JV range, cracked varsity for a few races my sophomore year, but ultimately was the first guy off the sectional team uh, because I was the eighth fastest guy and they took seven to sectionals in Wisconsin. Same thing junior year, ran varsity for most of the season was the first guy off the sectional team because a couple guys got faster than me in place of the couple seniors who had graduated. Uh, and that team went to state and that really hurt my junior year to be that first guy off of the state team. And I was really kicking myself for it. But thankfully, my senior year in cross country, I was able to get my act together, more or less. A couple of seniors had graduated off the state team and I really only let one other kid in my grade who had also been working since middle school kind of get faster than me, but we both got faster. And I was able to squeak onto the postseason team as the last number seven runner. And luckily we made it to state again. And running that state course was probably the absolute high of my running career uh, because 
going from being the first guy off my junior year and going to state and everything is the first alternate in case anyone got sick or something like that the day of, but not running the course to being that last guy on. I think I finished like 165th or something in a state meet, but still just the experience of running state against, you know, so many high caliber runners was uh, very spectacular. My track career was a lot less illustrious. I kind of told my coaches, Hey, I'll run whatever you want if it means I can run varsity. And so I got my butt kicked in a bunch of 3,200s and 1,600s my freshman and sophomore years. Uh, and then my junior year, cross-country season, actually, I'm at a practice with one of my friends and we're kind of joking and someone's like, oh, no guys ever pull vaults. Those are just for the girls because for whatever reason, we've traditionally had a really strong girls pull vault program at our school. And I'm like, I'll pole vault if you pay me two bucks for it. And sure enough, I pole vaulted my junior season. I collected the two bucks, cleared eight foot. Uh, although really it was closer to eight, six before they moved the bar up to nine. Uh, my junior year and then my senior track season was wiped out a week into the season due to the pandemic. So that is the my running career in a nutshell story. Yeah, I always liked being an alternate. Um, you know, when our New England regionals in college, um, they took three alternates uh, just to just so we were absolutely sure in case uh, something happened that we would have a full team. And there were a couple of years where I was the third alternate, so I was basically guaranteed that I wasn't going to have to run the race, but I still got to go and support my teammates and and be there and get that experience. Um, I never quite got the opportunity to run in that meet. Um, you know, that, that was my goal, my senior, senior year. And then of course COVID hit and, you know, we kind of had a season this past fall, but you know, it was mostly, it was, well, it wasn't mostly, it was all just inner squad meets and, you know, not too much. Yeah. I mean, it was, well, that was a little frustrating, but, um, you know, still a lot of fun and glad that we got to have a season, but even if we had, you know, we, we had such a strong team this year that I, it had been my goal senior year to be able to be top seven, but you know, there, there were guys that have been top seven the previous couple of years that they wouldn't have even been top seven this year just because we had so many amazing uh, freshman runners on, on our guys squad and on our, our women's squad as well. Um, so I, I definitely, I definitely know that feeling. It's just so unique because in team sports, there are bench players per se, but you know, a lot of your bench players still come in at some point during the game, but with cross country, it's like you're either running or you're not running. And, you know, you always, at least when I was the first alternate, I always kind of held out hope that, you know, I'm not wishing harm on anybody, but if by some reason, you know, the chance to run in the postseason would fall on me, that'd be fantastic. But luckily I was able to get there my senior year. And it's funny because six of our seven postseason runners on the guys side my senior year were seniors and uh it just really emptied out after that and i think it even going down to jv i think it was like 12 of the top 14 were seniors so uh it really really emptied out after that kind of the opposite of what gordon went through your senior year did you prefer cross country or track i preferred cross country mainly because the weather was better here um, because in track season, you'd start indoors 
and the first indoor meet was always around March 15th. And you do indoor meets for about a month, but then you head outside in mid-April and it's 40 degrees. The winds are anywhere between 10 and 20 miles an hour. And you're lucky to catch sun like two days a week. And on the flip side, cross country, you're rolling into October, uh, maybe early November, and the temperatures are still 60s on a good day. You see all the fall colors. You get to run at parks instead of just whatever high school is in the next town over. And that I don't know. I thought that the camaraderie was also a lot closer in cross country, seeing how you weren't all separated to go to call times at different events and stuff like that. You ran as a team and you acted like one a little bit more, in my opinion. Yeah, well, I can definitely see where the weather uh, being in Wisconsin would would make a difference there. Um, I got to the point where I went I went to a very small high school. Um, so, you know, I, I won't get into the whole story here, but I basically only had a track team one of my four years in high school. So I didn't have a lot of experience in track and wasn't even planning on running track when I got to college um, until I found out how much overlap there was between the two teams and almost everybody who did cross country did both. Um, and I just fell in love with it. You know, I, I wouldn't care if the whole year was track. Um, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. I think that's partly because I'm more of a mid-distance runner than, you know, when you get to college and cross country running 8Ks. Um, so, you know, that that took a toll on me. I felt like I was better over like the 800 distance or the 1500 distance. So that probably played a part in it too. Um, but that's maybe a good segue here. Um, I know you mentioned doing some 3200s and uh, 1600s in track. Um, what what kind of events, and I obviously mentioned pole vaulting as well, um, which I know you got into a little bit. Um, what other events did you venture into? I was really mostly a, a 1600 guy. That was my bread and butter throughout the two years that I really focused on distance. I ran a lot of 32s my freshman year just because yeah, I was the freshman who wanted to. And so obviously all of the upperclassmen said, sure, give the freshman the 32. We don't care. And so I ran a, I ran a couple of open eights, uh, never really could find a consistent pace. I never really figured out how to run uh, in 800, just kind of technique wise. I was always trying to do pickups at different points and stuff like that. Uh, ran some JV four by eights and I think maybe one or two varsity four by eights, but the four by eight actually went to state my junior year and goodness knows I was nowhere close to that. So I was definitely more of a mile guy, uh, despite the fact that I was really mostly mediocre at all of them. What was your fastest, uh, I guess your fastest eight and your fastest mile on the track. My fastest eight was actually under somebody else's name because they were like sick that day or something. And I was only running the mile. So I took the open eight as well. That was a two, two seventeen, And then my fastest 16 was a five sixteen. All right. You, I think you might have me beat on the open eight actually. Um, I, I know I did. I did an SMR my sophomore year and I ran the 800 leg in that and my split was a two fifteen. Um, but I think my best open eight is like a two seventeen. 0.6 or something. So it, it would be really close. I think you might actually have me beat on the eight. Um, and I guess there's not really a good comparison because in college you run a 15 most of the time. So, um, you know, I, I got down to a 446, I think in the 15s that I did, but you know, yeah, you have me beat there. Yeah. You're not taking the last hundred meters in 30 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I, I was wondering 
you know, cause I always, I had this dream of running a sub five minute mile, but you know, that it's tough to simulate race conditions and, you know, not getting that extra hundred, I guess it's like 108, 109 meters actually. Um, cause 1600 is not quite a mile, but you know, I wonder, I wonder if I could have done it. I know I couldn't do it now cause I've been out of, out of running for almost, uh, six months now, um, that I've graduated, but yeah, it's, a uh, it's a really good community. I think just the whole, the whole running community. And I really enjoyed my time, uh, running in both high school and college. Um, I know you're a few years behind me now. Have you, have you kept up with running in athletics at all? So I attend the university of Minnesota twin cities, sometimes known this year as zoom university, because they compared to a lot of other colleges in the Midwest, they had very, very limited in-person offerings in both fall and spring semesters. So I actually stayed home for the year and I wound up falling into basically an assistant coaching position at my old high school for the alternate spring cross country season, because a lot of schools around here canceled in the fall because uh, the spike in Wisconsin was really like September through mid-October. So I started coaching, I think my first practice was like March 17th or 18th and like two weeks in, I realized, Oh, I should probably like start running five days a week. If I coach kids who run five days a week. So today's May 24th. So I've been running for about six weeks on a consistent basis now trying to hold it through the summer, but I've never really worked 50 hours a week consistently. And it's, it's getting harder to fit in five quality runs a week. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm only working 30 hours a week and I'm still not finding the time to, to get out and, and get, get some runs in. I've been enjoying retirement. I'm not sure I'm going to get back into it eventually, but uh, yeah, yeah, it's tough when you're, when you're working. Uh, I, I know that firsthand having, having this job for the last four months now, um, you know, it's, it's nice to, have a source of income, um, especially at our age, but it does take time out of your day. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So I guess we can, uh, I don't want, I want to be careful with our timing here because I, I thank you for joining me uh, this late. I know our, our schedules made it kind of difficult. I guess you're an hour behind me in Wisconsin, uh, but I, I still don't want to keep you too late here. Um, I obviously know you from uh, the motorsports world and I know that's been a big part of your life as well. So tell me how you got into racing. Well, this is uh, going to be a great story for all of you marketing people who listen to the podcast. It was the Sunday before kindergarten started for me. I, I, for some reason, remember this very distinctly. I am just sitting in my living room. It's a Sunday afternoon. I don't know why I'm not like playing football outside or something. I think it was like the week before the NFL season kicked off and I turn on the TV and I flip to, oh gosh, I think it was ABC at that point. And they're like cutting to commercial break, but the shell car passes by. And I associated that because my parents at that point in time always got gas from shell gas stations. So I kept it there after the commercial break and all of a sudden NASCAR happened. And uh, that was really how it started. I was a NASCAR guy for a long, long time. That was the fall of 07. And by like 2011, I was like really, really deep in um, books, video games, daydreaming in class about it, 
through like fifth grade, sixth grade, you know, the whole deal. Went to Road America's first Xfinity race, then it was a nationwide race back in 2010. Um, pretty much did did everything NASCAR I could uh, really through elementary school, middle school. I know you've got the numbers four and 29 in your social media handles. Um, I know that's a tribute to Kevin Harvick. Is that how you became a Harvick fan? Yeah, pretty much. I, I saw that he was the shell car and, you know, I know that there were a lot of shell gas stations near my house at that point. Uh, whereas, you know, sometimes there aren't really a lot of sit goes in some places and goodness knows Sinclair oil doesn't get this far East. So, uh, yeah, that was really how I became a Kevin Harvick fan. And somehow I stuck with him instead of going over to, I think Kurt Busch was the first guy to have the shell sponsorship at Penske. Yeah, it was, was Kurt. It was Kurt. And then it was, uh, then it was AJ. I think everybody forgets AJ just because of, uh, what happened i know i for half a season too yeah i certainly don't forget what happened to aj um but yeah but i yeah i mean i i became a hornish fan uh shortly after that just because i was like well you know i'm i've got some 22 merch i might as well just keep rooting for the same car and i've i knew hornish from his indycar days and followed he was like almondinger and that he he came over to nascar right when it was kind of at its peak and you know it's unfortunate that he never really got a proper shot at cup i think penske kind of rushed him up a little too early um but yeah and then uh you know aj came back with phoenix and then jtg doherty won his race at the Glen, and now he's doing great things with colleague but uh yeah i think i got into it i mean it was cars that got me into it that was summer of 06 and watched my first race in the fall and i was hooked by 2007 so i guess it was right around that same time crazy how those things work despite the fact that i think we're three years apart in age like i feel like especially that like 2005 to 2007 range was when so many people our age wound up getting into nascar yeah well i mean it was big too you had uh i think the the tv ratings peaked in 05 and the 06 500 was the the most watched 500 ever cars came out in 06 talladega nights came out in 06 so you know there was there was a lot of a national attention on it. So I don't obviously know nobody our age was watching Talladega nights. In well, that's true. That is true. But I'm just going to clear that up for the moral <laughs> standards crowd. Yeah. I still have not sat through that movie all the way through. Um, you know, it, it is on my very long list of, of movies to watch. Um, but I just, I know people either love it or hate it. And I just, I don't know where I would fall on that scale. Um, but I, I know people have, it's definitely got, a mixed reaction from uh, the, the fan base, generally speaking. So I'll have to give it a shot eventually. I don't know. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, I've sat through it once and I could definitely see where people find humor in just the pure lampooning of NASCAR, but uh, it was a little bit over the top for me, but it was still better than Herbie Fully Loaded for those of you who have watched that. Uh, I would put that farther down on your list than Talladega Nights. That's the Herbie with Lindsay Lohan, right? Yes. Yeah. It is. Yep. Yeah. That's uh, that's on my list as well. But again, haven't <laughs> gotten through it. Um, Push it to the bottom. There's yeah. little to no merit. Oh, but I've seen Driven though. Have you seen Driven? I have not seen Driven. That okay. one is that one's on my list. You've got to watch Driven. I've got to watch uh, Herbie fully loaded. I guess we'll do it for the memes. Yeah. No, Driven. Driven is actually, it's so bad. It's act, I was actually kind of enjoyed it. Um, you know, it wasn't like, oh, you know, that, that was 
uh, two hours of my life I'll never get back. You know, it was, <laughs> I don't know. I like, cause I, I, I liked Howard the Duck. I know people hate that movie to consider it one of the worst ever, but I felt the same way. I was like, well, you know, I, I don't regret taking two hours out of my evening to watch it. Um, but it's, it's crazy. I think Sylvester Stallone even says he regretted making the film. Um, cause you know, I, I don't know. He wanted it to be an F1 film, but you know how F1 is with access and everything. It was easier to do it with cart at the time, but you know, people I think are only half joking when they say that driven kind of hastened the demise of cart and, uh, well, there are, I mean, there are obviously a lot of other factors that yeah, you could take yeah. up three podcasts about, but it's hard not to make that argument at least a little bit. Yeah. Well, I know, um, flashing forward a little bit, you, uh, right around the time that we got to know each other, you started writing for, uh, somebody who I have, uh, the utmost respect for, I think does great things in, in our sport and is criminally underfollowed. And that's, uh, Brock Beard at Last Car. Um, so tell me how your desire to um, get into writing, get into journalism started, and what made you connect with uh, with Brock. So I was in the kind of fast track for English in high school, and so freshman year, it's so above anything any of us middle schoolers have ever seen before. You just struggle through that, but then you get to sophomore year. And you start writing all these long papers and you start giving these speeches. And I'm like, man, I don't hate it, but like everybody else does. So that's when the light bulb kind of went off that maybe this would be something worth pursuing in the future. And that was in the fall. And so that winter, I started looking at opportunities to write in motorsports. And the first one I came upon was a site known by many, but liked by a number less, and that is Beyond the Flag, uh, Fansided's attempt at motorsports coverage. Little did I know until I read the website that you had to be 18 to write for them, which was probably a good move in retrospect, um, just having years of experience on that now. But then I kind of looked around to see who else would maybe have an opening, and I actually just wound up cold emailing Brock and I'm like, hey, I know you're pretty much a one man show right now, but would you be interested if I wrote KNN races for you? And he's like, well, turn in a sample article and I'll think about it. And I turned in my sample article and he got back to me a week to the day before the ARCA season started that year uh, because my first year was a mashup of ARCA, KNN East, and KNN West. And so I did not know I was actually doing it until literally a week before the season started. You know, you hear that kind of story with drivers all the time. Same deal with me for the writing. And that first year definitely had some growing pains in it just because I had never actually really attempted to attach my name to anything in the public domain and try and push out a polished product about something that I probably had no business doing at 16 years old, but I don't regret any of it. And now I'm in my fourth season covering the ARCA National Series this year. And I do agree with your statement that Brock is criminally underfollowed and is doing fantastic things for the sport. You look at what he has done to 
bring about attention to figures in the sport who really have just been outright ignored by some of the traditional media and his feature length biography on JD McDuffie. People within the sport have noticed it, that's for sure. And I know he has an upcoming book on Derek Cope coming out this fall. That will definitely be an interesting one as well. But just the fact that he was able to find such a unique angle on NASCAR coverage and turn it into something that doesn't poke fun at the small teams, but says basically, hey, here's a here's a chance for you guys to have your moment in the spotlight. And I'm glad that I can do the same for some of these ARCA teams. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, you bring up Derek Cope, I think it's really unfortunate um, that he went out this year at Daytona like he did because, you know, he's got such a great story. I'm, I'm sure Brock's going to tell it very well. And he's a Daytona 500 champion and you can't take that away from him either. So, you know, to see him have the speed weeks that he had, you know, was was painful for me to watch because I know everybody was roasting him on Twitter and on social media. And I think a lot of those people, I hope a lot of them read Brock's book and, and get a better understanding of who he is. Cause obviously Derek's not in his prime anymore and he's driving for, you know, a team in Rick, Rick Ware. Ware. They're and trying, but you know, they don't obviously have the, the budget that, you know, a top team has. So, you know, it was never really going to work out, um, like, a, like people were hoping. So, um, but yeah, I mean, did you, were you drawn to the, the idea of last cars? Like, are you a fan of the underdog? Is, is that something that played a role in wanting to write for Brock? It was a little bit in the beginning, but it was more about just getting my foot in the door in the motorsports world. And then it, as soon as I started writing and making connections within the sport, my love for the underdog just grew so much, especially at the ARCA level, because even at the cup level, just to get a cup car on track, you need to do so much and you're pretty much a well-oiled machine. Okay. Maybe with the exception of a bike racing, but them aside, you're basically a well-oiled machine, no matter who you are, by the time you hit the cup track with Arca, sometimes you literally have a 23 year old kid who bought one chassis, you know, sold all of his other racing equipment, rounded up a handful of his friends and, went to like Toledo or something. And those are the kind of stories that I love because I actually wound up having the really unique opportunity. I believe the only nationally published interview with NASCAR truck racer, Lou Goss, who only made one start after a number of issues plagued his 2019 season. But just the fact that someone from my hometown wound up selling all of his other racing equipment, buying one truck chassis from Mike Harmon, wound up taking it to, I think, three races. He made the show in one of them. And I wound up, you know, having the chance to do a long interview with him. Uh, luckily, since he was so close by, those kinds of stories are the ones that I live for and that I probably wouldn't have a chance to post at some other outlets because I don't know, they wouldn't get the clicks or something, but Brock has told me whoever you can get to interview, if they're an underdog, I'll post them on the site. Absolutely. And he's just been such a fantastic guy for that. Yeah. I know a lot of my favorite stories in stock car racing have come from the ARCA K and N level the last few years. I'm thinking like when Herschel McGriff came back at 90 and, uh, you know, it's K&M West, which is now Arca West, but, uh, you know, just thinking about his teammates were, uh, 
were Haley Deegan and Derek Kraus, and they're 16 years old at the time. And he's out here at 90 and it's a 74 year age difference between teammates. Like what other sport are you going to find anything like that in? And, uh, you know, thinking back to last year, seeing uh, Brad Smith and Con Nicolopoulos getting their top 10 finishes and Dave Mater finishing second at Talladega this year, you know, it doesn't happen often, but when you see feel good stories like that for uh, the underdogs and, you know, not just young drivers, but veterans that have been around for decades that are still out doing it just because they love the sport and ARCA gives them a platform to do that. Um, you know, I, I wish the car counts weren't as low as they were, um, or as they have been rather, it's, it's painful to see the entry lists come out. Sometimes you only have 13 or 14 cars, but you know, I still love it. And it's, uh, it's, it's one of the best series we have in North America, in my opinion. Yeah. And it's really kind of sad that you mentioned the field sizes because that's actually one of the reasons that I stopped covering K&N East and West after only one season is because you had some races, especially out West where you would maybe only have 13 cars and I'm doing like my bottom five tally for the end of the article. And I'm like, man, the guy who finished ninth, who claimed a top 10 finish in the races here in the bottom five. And I'm like, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. So I went over to what was then the only ARCA series, which traditionally had a little bit of a higher car count than the K&N series. But unfortunately with the circumstances that stock car racing has been in the past few years, it's the drop in car count, unfortunately did make its way to the ARCA national series. Yeah. You know, I'm really hoping that with this next gen car coming out next year, but you know, with the gen six bodies being obsolete, I, I wonder if there's something they can do with the, the regulations to, help make those cars easier to acquire for the ARCA teams or, or do something to get the car counts up. Cause people were saying, well, you know, you've got 20 cars coming to Iowa, at the ARCA race and 20 cars coming to Iowa, at the K and N combo race. So, you know, if you merge the series and put them together, you'll have a full field of 40 cars and that did not happen. So, you know, they, they got to figure out something cause you know, you, you can't, I don't know how much worse the car counts can get, um, you know, for you to still be able to, run a series and be able to sell tickets and, and put on a good show. Yeah. And I just love the flawed logic of like, Hey, a and B happens. So if a plus B must equal C and no, that's not how it works at all. The, there were at least four overlaps in there that people just completely forgot about. And I do give Arca credit with really pushing the Sioux chief showdown last year. I think that minus the pandemic, I think that that really had potential because I think Bill McAnally racing expressed interest in running the full showdown schedule. And depending on if they hit the setup, right. Those are sometimes some fast cars in Arca national races. And I think rev racing might've done one entry for the showdown the whole year. Uh, so I was like one extra car for a lot of them, but unfortunately with the pandemic, I mean, everybody had fewer dollars to go around. And if you're just an Arca East team, you know, you go to just the Arca East races and as cool as some of the bonus showdown money would have been for the national series, it just didn't make a lot of financial sense for a lot of these teams. Yeah. Well, and obviously the pandemic's not something that anybody could control. Um, so it's unfortunate that that's kind of overlapped with the decreasing car counts and the tough times that the series has been facing. Um, you know, I, I got to meet Bill Hoff when I went to New Jersey. Um, and that's a track that I wish would, would come back on the schedule. Maybe once the car counts get a little bit healthier again, but, um, you know, I, 
miss seeing him out on the track in uh in 2020 i don't know what i should check in with him maybe see what he's up to um but yeah i know it's it's even tougher it's tough for those guys and those teams to get to the track regardless i'm sure the pandemic only only further complicated that yeah and it was just kind of also really interesting because you could definitely see in the back half of the season which races paid and which races didn't because the car counts would just fluctuate so widely in between, especially the companion races with the top three NASCAR series. And I know that people like to rip on the schedulers of, of the ARCA series for scheduling so many companion races, but you just can't deny that the purses for those races are higher than the purses for you know some of your Toledo's maybe your Winchesters, things like that. And teams are going to go to races that pay more. And so I applaud them trying to get as many kind of short track companion weekends, Bristol, Dover, Iowa, back when NASCAR actually raced Iowa, lol. Um, that kind of thing that they were able to hopefully incentivize some teams to get racing for some purse money. Yeah, you know, I, I just, I've got nothing against like iRacing and the NASCAR heat. Well, I don't know. Maybe I shouldn't say that because I do have some things to say against NASCAR heat, but uh, certainly nothing against like the teams and the, the esports drivers in, in either series. Um, but, you know, and I, I don't even know that the problem is that iRacing pays 40 grand to win. The problem is that iRacing pays 40 grand to win when Arca East pays three grand to win on some race weekends. And it's like, you know, if, if these guys are you know, and I hate to piss people off here, but it is by definition a game over video. So, you know, <laughs> it's a video game by definition when you're getting paid 40 grand to win that, but three grand to win a race where your your tire bill alone is pushing five figures probably. Like, you know, that's not, that's not sustainable and that doesn't seem right to me. That's the issue for me is that no matter what format it is, setting that aside, you look at the costs involved and your motor only lasts so many races, right? Your tires are done after a hundred laps. It's correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not like these guys in the E NASCAR series are going out and buying new monitors, new rigs, new everything in between each race, because then maybe, maybe I could see like something a little less than 40 grand compared to three grand for Arca East. But you look at the costs to the the purse and it just, it doesn't make sense at all. Yeah. Well, NASCAR heat in particular, I'm thinking to myself, like all this prize money, all this money to promote the, the esports series. Like what if all that money went into developing the game <laughs> so that people like you and me could have a more enjoyable experience. And, you know, I would think you could sell more games that way. You know, I'm, I'm not a business expert by any means, but that, and that makes sense to me. I know that Unity is a, a really powerful game engine, but at least at my high school, it's the game engine you learn on in gaming and app development one. Like it is like the basic game building window in the, and for Heat Evolution, fine, get your feet under you, whatever. For Heat 5 and we're still on Unity, it was, it was a little disconcerting. You know, I paid 60 bucks for Heat Evolution. <laughs> I got it when it came out and I paid, mistakes. I dropped 60 bucks on that. Yeah. That's yeah. What, what I paid I, 27 uh, on cyber Monday. Yeah. Well, okay. That's a little bit better, but uh, yeah. One of my biggest, one of my biggest regrets and there was no ticket. 
Can you can you think about oh, that? Like there was, the ticket alone was what like they 50 didn't do or something. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the thing with Heat Two and Heat Three. Like, if you if you use the ticket, and I got to use the ticket when I went to Dover in 2018, you know, if you were going to go to a race anyway, you basically got the game for free. So, you know, I'll, I'll give 704 credit where it's due. Like, that's that's an amazing deal for the people that were going to go to these races. But you know, I was not going to haul down to Kentucky. No, yeah. not for fifty dollars off the ticket. Yeah. Sorry. Well, I, I mean, I think Dover wasn't on Dover wasn't on Heat Two. It was an option for Heat Three. So that worked out nicely oh, for me um independently but, owned tracks am i right yeah yeah i think dover and uh dover and ims got on the deal with heat three but yeah that i mean the fact that they charged 60 bucks and you know it was it was the first game and it was i don't know i i go back and and play it sometimes just to remind myself and i'm like how did how did i play this on a regular basis for physics a oh. year again yeah yeah, it'll be interesting when the new Superstar Racing Experience game drops on Friday. That's in uh, four days. That's yeah, that was kind of out of nowhere. Because they've also game? got, they've got like dirt lates and I think 410 winged sprints. Yeah, which... yeah. I mean, it it looks great. You know, I don't know, but I'm, it, I mean, it's basically going to be NASCAR Heat five and a half, I think. You know, because it's it's the same people behind it. But you know, I don't know. If I'm going to drop forty dollars on it, although. I think Alan Bestwick's in the game, right? I, th- I he, did not read that far into it. I think he tweeted something like you might see a familiar face or something. Like, I don't know if he, it's even been. No, a he's just talking about Matt Yocum, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think it's been official by any means. But like, if he's in the game, maybe I'd, I'd consider it because, you know, I think he's one of the best play-by-play guys and, you know, really excited that he's going to be doing the series in real life. But I just uh, like, I can't believe srx has a game already but uh indycar still doesn't that's that's my pet peeve is that all IndyCar about connection right together there but yeah well uh one thing i, w- I want to get into before we uh talk a little bit more about i guess we've been talking a lot about modern day arca again i know i kind of had that last on my rundown here but i know when you were covering arca for for brock which you're still doing um i know you've gotten the opportunity to go to road america which is your home track and and get to actually be on the grounds and and cover the race on site for last car so tell me about that experience yeah that was actually really interesting because two years before no it was the year before the year before i started writing for brock it was the jeremy clements uh spin and win at road america but the undercard earlier that day was an arca race and i was seated at the bottom of the hill like midway up the hill uh right at pit entrance and so it was one of the classic arca green white finishes where they wave the green and the white at the same time and so i think it was like oh goodness dalton Sargent, i think was leading the race and i think like noah gregson was next to him in like a cunningham car and a venturini car the lead changed like five times on the last lap. Right? And, and they the barrel one? into turn one and you just hear the track announcer go crazy. And then they hit turn three and the track announcer goes crazy again. And you see him pop briefly into view for turn five. And all of a sudden Austin Theriel is in the lead from like 10th or something. And he keeps it clean on the back end and wins like his 15th race of the season for Ken Schrader or something. Uh, but then I start writing for Brock in 2018 and poof, the Arca series is gone and in it, it, in its place is some road racing series that I, I think it was like 
Transams, maybe. But anyways, just something completely road-based and something like that. So I actually wound up only covering the Xfinity race. And that was also really interesting because the last place finisher in that one was Ryan Reed. And that's not a car that finishes last a lot, especially since there were still, I think, a couple starting parks at that point in the Xfinity series. He just, I think he lost it really early in the race. And so I run from the media center to the infield care center. And there he walks out, his PR guy's right by him. And I'm like, Ryan, do you have any comment on the finish? He's like, no. And I'm like, all right, thank you. So I, I gave a solid no comment for my, for my first onsite reporting. That was fantastic. But just the, the atmosphere of the media center was fantastic and actually getting in the garage was fantastic. Uh, you really haven't experienced a NASCAR race till you hit the garage. I'm, I'm just being honest. There's so much that goes on in the garage and that's where you really make the connections. Uh, in 2019, I actually saw a jack slip on someone's car and break a crew member's collarbone. So that was fun. Um, crazy things happen in the garage, but it's just, it's kind of wild. And unfortunately, uh, they won't really let the media people out of the media center too much last year and this year. So it doesn't really look like it's going to happen this year, but maybe next year. So did you get to, I mean, obviously you're there to cover the drivers and teams, but did you get to meet like Pockrass and Gluck and people like that and get to get some advice from them? It was actually only an Xfinity race. So I believe the only two like well-known beat reporters that were there were Jim Utter and Chris Knight. And then I think in 2019, Aaron Bearden pulled like a really long drive. And I think he went from like Indy cars at Gateway on Saturday night. And he found on Friday night, maybe I'm losing track. Oh no, the race was on a Sunday. I remember the race was on a Sunday. So it was IndyCar at Gateway on Saturday night, and he pulled like a long drive through Illinois and Wisconsin to wind up at Road America Sunday morning. And he was super nice, really super cool dude. Um, got to meet him. He was actually the one that I talked to the most. And then the Milwaukee Journal Sentinels auto racing reporter was also um, a blast to be around and ask questions. And I actually, my first year, I got mistaken for Justin Haley in uh, one of the media availabilities. So that was fun. Yeah, that's uh, well, I, de I definitely wouldn't mistake you for him. Um, I, I don't know, was We're your hair as long back then, or <laughs> it, it was it was decently long. It wasn't this long, but it was long enough to tell it was curly by any stretch of the imagination. And well, I I don't know. I guess they saw somebody who looked like they were in their late teens and was about five foot seven, and said, and looked and saw that Justin Haley was on the uh, availability list because they just kind of held the availability in a big conference room and they had like three drivers. And so then the press could go and mingle around the drivers as they pleased. And so I think Justin Haley hadn't gotten there yet. And this one guy turns to me and he's like, hi, Justin. And I'm like, Oh, Oh no, no, I'm not Justin. Here's my press credential hanging around my neck. Thanks. Yeah. Well, I guess, so I guess he was, he was driving with colleague at the time at this yes. point, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's strange. I, I wouldn't, picture of the two of you getting uh confused for one another but yeah that's interesting it was an older gentleman i'll give him the benefit of the doubt sure bifocals weren't working yeah well um i don't know if you ever even published this uh 
thing that you wrote, it was kind of just like a personal essay. Um, you kind of, uh, I know I've walked away from NASCAR. Um, I guess I shouldn't say stock car racing, obviously, since you're still covering ARCA, but I know you're interested in the top three series. I know you watch Daytona. Um, you know, it's kind of hard not to just because there's so much attention on that race and, um, you know, watch Bristol dirt just because of the, the history behind, you know, cup cars. Actually that one was because it got rain delayed. Okay. I had well, nothing better to do on Monday afternoon. Sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. Um, wh- why have you kind of fallen away from the sport? You know, what, what, what's causing you to, to lose your passion for the top levels of, uh, of stock car racing? Yeah. So I actually did wind up publishing it publicly on my medium, which is wsoki20.medium.com. But basically, I think the the new era playoffs started in 2014. And that would have put me in seventh grade. And I ate that stuff up. I was like eliminations and like wins and stuff like that. And my favorite driver won the championship. Like, like how could I not, you know? That helps. He called by Rodney Childers, but hey, it worked out. And then eventually, you know, I, I'm like, really? Like, we're going to decide the champion in one race instead of 36? And I start looking, and then all of a sudden the package comes along, and you, you can't pass anybody. And I hate to knock Formula One, but it, it kind of felt like Formula One where you really couldn't pass anybody and where your car was, that's you know, where you're going to finish, but formula one's predicated around mechanical innovation and stuff like that. Whereas NASCAR is like beat bang, you know, race your way to the front or whatever. And I think actually the summer of 2020, I think I wound up making it. I'm very blessed. There are like six short tracks within an hour of my house. And I'm pretty sure I made it to five of the six over the summer of 2020. And that really kind of opened my eyes to say, this is what it should be. You know, it's not supposed to be playoffs and one race winner takes all and packages and sure they might you know impound your crate motor for a week or something after you win the modified class at a local track but like it's nothing compared to i don't know failing inspection because your rear window is sunk or something like that so it was just kind of gimmicky for me and and i kind of went back and i'm like you know i'll I'll take racing at its roots yeah you know i definitely understand where you're coming from and i'm not going to lie. I, I feel the same way myself. I did that playoff video of this off season. Cause like, I'm not even like, I have nothing against Kevin Harvick. I think he's a great champion and a great driver, but you know, I wouldn't call myself like an active fan of his. Um, but even, even I was, I think even uh, Kamikaze games, the, the YouTuber, like Harvick's his second most hated driver. And even he was like, there's no reason he shouldn't be the champion this year just because he had such an amazing season and won literally a quarter of the races and just has a couple of bad mediocre races at the end of the third round in the playoffs and that's it you know he doesn't even it's not like he lost for championship he didn't even get to run for the championship so you know it, it seems it seems a little unfair to me um you know I, I believe in crowning a champion over a full season and rewarding consistency i don't think you need playoffs in a sport where every competitor competes on the same level playing field at one time um and like you said the pack the package is terrible um you know i really hope the next gen car race as well because you know ultimately at the end of the day like you know I, i'll put up with gimmicks like stages and 
and playoffs, you know, it is what it is. I don't think it's going anywhere anytime soon, but the racing has to be good. And it, it's painful to watch a car that's clearly faster, um, not be able to, to get by, you know, and some of these races look like, you know, I know we made the formula one comparison. It looks like Monaco, you know, you, you can't pass except the tracks wide and you would think you'd be able to get a run on somebody, um, but you can't do it. That's the thing. Monaco is designed to be essentially a, a one groove racetrack in every single turn. And you're really lucky if somebody, you know, comes out of a braking zone at the wrong time or something, and you're able to make an overtake and IndyCar is kind of the same way too on, on the road courses. It's all about driver, you know, technique and skill and searching for that opportunity to pounce. Whereas, you know, NASCAR, you got two shots at turns, wide sweeping multi-lane turns every lap. And when you're not able to do it, it, it just kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah. And I think it's rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Um, you know, I think people, people blamed what happened with, with Bubba Wallace this summer for the ratings. I think that's a very small minority and fraction of the fan base turning it off. I think the ratings have been in decline in reality for much longer than that. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with the gimmicks and, you know, kind of driving the, the hardcore purist uh, motorsports fans. You know, I mentioned this in the video I did. I don't know if newer fans even would recognize this because I know Formula One's grown a lot here in the States with the Netflix series and, you know, a variety of different factors. But there was the metal system that Bernie uh, introduced in 2009 and, like, actually got into the rule book like it was going to happen where the driver that won the most races throughout the year would be the champion because he didn't like the fact that Massa lost the championship on the last race to Hamilton, despite the fact that he had more wins. Um, and the opposition was so strong that they actually said three days later, okay, never mind. Um, they, they just threw it out completely. Um, and in my opinion, I think that's, uh, you know, thank goodness they did because, you know, I think, you know, it, it would have ruined the, the reputation of the sport for, for many, many people. Um, but, you know, of course, NASCAR is like, frankly, I'd even take that over, you know, the elimination system that NASCAR has now. Cause I think, you know, there's all sorts of gimmicky scenarios you can come up with. And a lot of them are far-fetched admittedly and would never actually happen in real life. Like people say winning the first 35 races, like obviously that, that's never going to happen, but it's just, it's the fact that it can. And then you have an engine failure in the 36th or, you know, even finish second in the 36, you might not be the champion. Yeah. And I think it's kind of incredible how under the rug Matt Crafton's truck championship went because that was supposed to be the complete antithesis to the playoff format. He never won a race. I think he was second at Homestead because I think it was like Austin Hill just dominated the field that day. And he was just kind of there and he plugged along and you know, nobody really noticed him until he found his way into Homestead and won the title. And I wouldn't really call myself a, a racing purist per se, because maybe I just don't want to be grouped in with a, a group that's, you know, commonly looked down upon in today's day and age, but I'm just kind of a, a common sense guy. And I just want to see racing. And I think that Jeff Gluck kind of puts this really well in, in some of his teardown podcasts where it's like you can see that NASCAR is trying so hard to put on like a good race in air quotes and like no one has the same definition of a good race. And, and once you stop trying to tailor it for, 
you know, the 0.3% of fans that answer the fan council surveys, you know, oh goodness, the fan council. Yeah. Um, you know, but eight, you out, of, eight out of 10 fans like stage racing. Well, yeah, it's, it's scientific yeah. fact. We liked what we saw, didn't we? And um, everything is great. Everything is great. And when I, when I read David Smith's article on motorsports athletics or on motorsports analytics, that if you can't, compete at phoenix you're not a title contender it, it's just so so backwards to me because then why not just have 36 separate seasons at that point and bill every race is a championship race boost your tv ratings that way yeah. i don't know yeah yeah harvick won nine championships last year i guess in one season how about that yeah but uh but that truck championship crafting one like even you know i I got to meet Ross Chastain when I went to Dover, you know, he's a great guy and he's got a great story, but you know, he, he didn't start scoring points that year. And you know, the, the whole points thing to me is, is kind of silly too. Like, you know, Moffitt's going through it again this year. Like, you know, I understand keeping the cup guys out of a lower series, but you know, I think now that you have the limitations, I think it's at a point where, you know, we could go back to, you know, if you can only let cup guys run five races a year, you know, just, just give them the points, you know, I, I don't really see any reason to have the one, series rule now where you know guys like Moffitt this year Chastain in 19 they can't be earning points in both series and then see where they end up you know so that when you get later in the season you can make the call then um but the reality is it was a lot like Kyle Busch's season you know he comes in miss technically missing I know he was in the races but missing the first eight races worth of points and still finds himself second in the championship you know it's there's no other series you know maybe in formula one, if you retire, because I know only the top 10 get points there, but you're probably not going to win the championship. If you crash out of the first eight races, um, you know, there's, there's no other way for you to get back in the championship fight. If you're, if you start that far behind and yet in NASCAR, they just have to give you a waiver like they did to Kenseth last year and uh, nothing against Matt Kenseth, but you know, it's kind of like, well, if he can get a waiver, then, you know, why can't anybody? And I think Enfinger is going to go through that this year if he keeps getting these uh, Camping World sponsorships to make up for the races he's not with Thor Sport. You know, he only missed one race. So if you give it to Kenseth last year, why not give it to – there's really no reason you shouldn't give it to Enfinger this year. Yeah, and I, I really just love how when this whole rule started, they're like, we're only giving out waivers in very special situations. You have to get it approved by, like, scott scotton whoever the third nascar exec was at the time or whatever and now they're just kind of like oh yep you're in you're in and the whole pine point swap thing is just so antiquated i mean landon castle ran the whole year for star common cup in 2019 but if you look he has zero points in cup for the year because he switched to xfinity points the final weekend of the season so he could run the xfinity race for morgan shepherd yeah i think morgan shepherd's a great run but yeah. you see Landon Castle with 36 cup starts and no points. Yeah, I think LaJoy did that one year too. Um, he was like... One of his go-fast years maybe, yeah. Yeah, somebody on... Yeah, to run the Xfinity race. Because Some, somebody on Twitter was, I think, trying to troll him saying, oh, look, he had zero points in cup this year. And he was like, well, I changed my points at, at Homestead so that I could just run the race, dummy. You know, it's like, it's just the silliest thing ever to me. Um, that, that that rule's still a thing with the limitations, but... Yeah, I don't know. So I guess I guess we'll end on this note. Um, you know, what do you think? Obviously, you got the next gen car coming in, um, but what do you think NASCAR can do over the next few years to try to, try to win people back over and 
revive an interest in the sport? It's just really hard to say because like I said before, you know, not everything is going to fit the, the same fan. And I think that there's just a, a portion of them that are kind of gone for good. There are a portion of them that'll just show up at their local bull ring every Saturday night, have a few beers, you know, hopefully have somebody else drive them home and just go on with their weekends. But I think for a lot of the, uh, a lot of the newer generation, it's going to have to be organic growth. And uh, you look at guys like Ryan Vargas who are plugging away on TikTok all the time. And I, I really do try to stay off TikTok as much as I can, because it's just a time waste uh, for me at least. But, you know, you look at that and you're reaching a whole new demo there and you get into Nashville and, and I get that Nashville super speedway has it in the name, but it's like 45 minutes outside of Nashville. You know, you get to the fairgrounds, and all of a sudden, all of these college kids who are in Nashville for, you know, like summer or on vacation in summer, whenever the race is, all of a sudden, boom, in Nashville city limits, here's this, you know, big event and stuff like that. And it's just got to be, it kind of hinges on the next gen car too, you know, because that's here to stay because just the amount of money the teams are going to spend in the first couple of years to swap out literally everything you're going to have to keep it longer than the car tomorrow to make it actually financially feasible for the teams so i guess a lot of it hinges on that no matter what else happens yeah well i think nashville's key especially because there's five nascar and formula one tracks in the area get that um, <laughs> yep yeah i know you're not on twitter anymore but did you did you pay attention to that at all i think i saw uh matt weaver's auto week article about that uh, just the the complete buffoonery of some of these local residents you know by by that scenario it's like Miami has had what like four different f1 designs go before the county board so Miami has four f1 tracks and um you know Abu Dhabi has like three because of their different layouts and stuff like that it, it whenever the general public tries to walk into motorsports it without exception ends badly oh you got indy coming up this weekend i, I can't wait for all the nascar's indianapolis 500 stories that are going to come out and yeah remember when cnn just absolutely butchered tony bridinger's story earlier this year yeah yeah yeah, well, yeah it's, uh, CNN, cnn called it nascar you know last august um i forget who that was but yeah like whenever general media tries to report on race they always get something screwed up and I know it's hard. I, I really know it is when you're like the sports arm of like a cable news network, but like at least like Google it maybe like, I don't know. Is that too much to ask? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what it, I'm, I'm trying to think of other examples, but you know, there's, there's so many times I've come across, like, I guess, I guess ESPN is a good example. Everybody likes to crap on ESPN these days, but uh, you'll remember when uh, Ryan Blaney finished second at uh, I think it was Martinsville. I think Truex won. It was last year, and they used Will Powers IndyCar font and Dave Blaney. <laughs> Dave Blaney, who hasn't raced Cup in six years, and they used his picture instead of when they were on Sports Center. Hey, Dave Blaney won a World of Outlaws race this past week. Yes, yes, he did. Yeah, well, and then you know, I I don't want to you know get political, but. Last year, the, the GoFast team took some money from a PAC and 
the PAC wanted the Trump scheme. And then you have all the media who's like, look, there's a Trump car. And I'm like, no, it's, it's a political action committee. It's not the Trump campaign. Like stop yeah. stereotyping everything like that. The, you know, motorsports is just so intricate that people just miss the details a lot of the time. Yeah. Not to mention there were Trump cars and Trump trucks earlier in the year and four years ago. And I think Rick Santorum was on a car, you know, in 2012. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, yeah, it is amusing though to, to see when that happens, but well, man, I, I appreciate you uh, taking the time tonight. You know, I, I know we, we struggled to make it work a little bit and it's, it's getting pretty late, especially for me on the East coast. So thank you very much. Um, you know, I'm working on, I guess I can reveal it now because it's probably going to be a few days. Um, I've gotten away from the My First Race series on my YouTube channel. I want to get the Indy 500 video out before the 2021 500 happens this weekend. So I'm going to be working on that um, kind of concurrently with trying to edit this, but uh, I'll get it up as fast as I can. But thank you for coming on and telling your story. I learned a lot about your running career and um, you know, I, I wish you nothing but the best in uh, whatever you do going forward. I know it's tough right now because we're still kind of on the back end of this pandemic, but uh, sounds like you've got some good things going on in your life right now. So wish you all the best for those. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I was really glad to have this chat. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime you want to FaceTime me or, or do anything else, you know, I know it's tough with you not being on Twitter these days. We miss you. You were one of the sane voices of reason. I totally get you wanting to escape escape that place but uh i don't know i still have like a personal twitter account that's like non-racing so i might i might jump back into the allies but yeah yeah uh, well we got you on instagram so you know that's, that's true but i i feel like i miss nice. a lot of the just a lot of the back and forth of like you know you share a tweet you know because that's where everything breaks these days or something like that so yeah yeah i know it's a, it's a lot easier to share a tweet than share a post share, yeah or, share an instagram post in the chat and we spend a lot more time on twitter because that's where we get all of our the news tends to break faster over there um because you just type you don't have to put a picture with it so filter it edit it crop it yeah it look perfect yeah nope yeah well man uh, i'm sure i'll see you around and uh like i said thank you for taking the time tonight we've had a lot of fun yeah absolutely take it easy <laughs>